You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while you're hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We've got a great episode in store for you. I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Grant Woods of Growing Deer TV. Now, if you have paid attention at all, over the last, I don't know, five or so years of uh, whitetail hunting media, or if you've looked up stuff online about food plots, or especially if you have gone onto YouTube looking for content about planting a food plot, the best way to get a food plot planted, or anything to do with habitat management, you have certainly come across Dr. Grant Woods. He is certainly one of the leading voices out there today when it comes to doing food plots, not only to attract deer, but doing food plots in a sustainable way that will benefit all the wildlife on your property. In this episode, we get into the details of what he calls the release method. We get into spring and fall plantings. We even cover exactly how just to get started. Uh, I know for a lot of guys that, you know, they look at Dr. Grant Woods or uh, some other people who are doing food plotting at a really, really high level, and they think, man, how do I ever go from what I'm doing right now, you know, till up the ground, throw out some buck forage oats, and hope it grows. How do I go from what I'm doing now to really, you know, building the health of my soil with my food plotting regimen? And that's exactly what we get into today. So whether you are a veteran food plotter or you're just getting started, this is a great episode for you. Now, a couple of things to cover here at the beginning. Uh, first up, man, I got to let you guys know, I'm sitting here looking at uh, a really really beautiful buck i got my mount back from Merzberger's rut strut and stream taxidermy in wisconsin had the opportunity to head up there to do a little bit of turkey hunting here over the last week or so and man this thing turned out phenomenally um i couldn't be more pleased not only with uh you know being reunited with this deer i had to i, I shot him and then had to leave him in wisconsin so i haven't seen this rack since november but the quality of the taxidermy work, just super, super impressed. If you're in, you know, northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, I highly recommend you go check them out. Merzberger's Rut, Strut, and Stream Taxidermy. 
Josh Merzberger does a great job. He also films for Midwest Whitetail, so he's uh, putting out some good content based there in southern Wisconsin as well. Yeah, and man, the other exciting update from me. I, uh, I just got back from, I don't want to call it a turkey tour. Uh, everybody else is calling it a turkey tour. Anyway, I just got back from hunting turkeys. I got to go to Iowa first, and then I got to go to Wisconsin. Now, the weather was what I would consider kind of trash weather when it comes to turkey hunting. It was uh, cold outside. It was windy. It was rainy. It snowed while I was in Iowa. Uh, there were thunderstorms on different days. One day there was a big hailstorm that blew through. Uh, just not ideal turkey hunting weather at all. And I only had a handful of days to get it done. Now, if you're familiar with the tag systems in Iowa and in Wisconsin, they have what are like these smaller seasons where you've got, you know, five to seven days to, to seal the deal. And I was fortunate enough to tag a turkey on my third day in Iowa. It was the fourth day of my tag. I had one more day to hunt. And then I was actually able to tag out on the first day of my season in Wisconsin on a beautiful public land bird and actually harvest this bird not too far from where I got my buck this past fall. So it has been a fantastic spring for me. I know this show is all about deer hunting, but man, I have a hard time until I get a couple of filled turkey tags in the spring. I have a hard time keeping my mind focused on whitetails. But now that I've filled both of those tags and now that the season is not really wrapping up here in Georgia, but we got, we've only got a couple of weeks left. And honestly, I'm probably not going to get out that many more times. I mean, when you travel and hunt as much as I did over the last couple of weeks, it, you really can't ask for a whole lot more. So I'm sure I'll get out. I'll take my kids out. But man, I'm shifting hard totally into whitetail mode. And so we've got a cool series that we're doing right now. Today, we're talking with Dr. Grant Woods about, uh, about his release process for food plotting. We're going to talk with someone about food plot architecture and design and placement on your property. We're going to talk to someone about uh, choosing the right seed, not only for uh, your particular type of soil, but the best thing to you know help you build your soil, the most attractive plants you can put on your property based on where you're at in the country. And then we're going to hit on some food plot hunting strategy. So the next couple of weeks are going to be all about food plots. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, Josh, I hunt only public land. I don't hunt food plots. I don't have access to food plots. That's okay. There's still going to be a lot for you. You're going to notice that I stop each of these guys along the way and say, hey, all right, this is all well and good. If you're a private landowner or if you lease ground or if you have access to ground where you can do something to the soil. How does this information carry over to the guy who's hunting on permission and can't do anything to the ground? How does it carry over to the guy who's going out in, in the big woods on public ground? I'm careful to throw those kinds of questions out there during the course of these interviews. So if you're thinking, man, I'm a public land guy, I don't, food plots don't matter to me, that's okay. Hang around. There's going to be a lot of good information in here for you as well. And if you've got specific questions that you would like for me to cover throughout the course of this food plotting series, please do write in and let me know. You can find me on Instagram at how to hunt deer, or you can also reach me at the Wisconsin sportsman. And Hey, even if you don't have a question, why don't you go follow me there? Anyway, you can keep up with all the cool stuff that, uh, that we've got coming down the pipe. I'm, I'm actually really getting geared up right now. Pretty pumped about this spring and summer and the archery regimen and the practice that I'm going to be doing. So hopefully going to be sharing a lot of that online with you. Now, a couple of big asks for you. 
number one. If you haven't already, please do go like, subscribe, follow, whatever it is they let you do, wherever you get this podcast. It really, really helps us out a ton. If you can leave us a written review, wherever it is that you review it, that is even better. Also, if you find this episode helpful, please do share it on uh, on social media. Share it with your buddies. They will thank you, especially if they're food plotters for this specific episode. But one thing you can do while you're listening to the episode, just take a quick screenshot, share that on social media, tag me in it. I'll, uh, I'll know that you found it helpful, and so will the rest of your friends. Next ask, we've got an awesome crew of sponsors that help us pull off this show each and every week. And uh, I couldn't be more happy to be working with the brands that I do work with. Very, very proud to represent them. Very, very happy to rock their gear. And it would mean an absolute ton to me if you would go and support the brands that support this show. Number one, Tacticam. This was my first time actually getting to film a hunt with the new Tacticam 6.0 camera uh, over the last couple of days when I was turkey hunting. And it is phenomenal. I mean, I've had my hands on these things for a little bit, but... I have not gotten to actually film a hunt with it yet, and man, these are awesome. The touchscreen is is a huge, huge upgrade. One thing I didn't know I was going to like as much as I as I do is the new shape of the housing. You know, before you could have your 5.0 or 5.0 wide or whatever it was in a specific mount, and even though the mount could be straight, the camera could be just a little bit crooked or tilted. So, you, you know, you pull up your app and you make sure your camera is straight when you're looking through the, uh, the viewfinder on your phone using the app. Well, number one, with this camera, you can tell if it's straight or not because it's got the little screen on there. But one huge benefit of the new shape of this housing is when it goes into the mount, if the mount is straight, then your camera is straight because they're no longer perfectly round. I've also found these cameras to have an excellent battery life. I have found that they take amazing footage. And I look forward to sharing with you here in a couple of days, possibly weeks. I don't know. Let me get it all put together and see some of the footage that I got from my turkey hunts. So you can go find the 6.0 and the Solo Extreme over at Tacticam.com. Next up, Huntworth. I have spent many, many days uh, now in the Huntworth gear this spring uh, from temperatures in the 20s and wind blowing and wet outside and snow to thunderstorms to hot days, you know, well above 80, 85 degrees. Each of those times, my Huntworth gear has kept me concealed, no matter the the foliage type that I'm finding myself in, whether it be in Wisconsin or down here in Georgia, but also has kept me comfortable. In fact, when I went to Iowa, when I left, the day that I left, the the forecast called for it to get a little bit cooler, but not quite as cold as it ended up getting. But when I got there with the gear that I had packed, even though I hadn't really packed for as cold a weather as I ended up experiencing, I was able to stay comfortable. I just had a little bit of an extra layer and boom, I was good to go. I never thought I'd be saying this, but the Saskatoon vest with the heat boost technology came in clutch during my my spring turkey hunt. And uh, let's see, that was on a Monday and by Saturday, uh, by Saturday morning, I'm back here in Georgia hunting in the 70 plus degree temperature with the Durham lightweight pants and their lightweight top on. So no matter where you hunt, no matter what kind of hunting you do, Huntworth has you covered. You should go check them out, huntworthgear.com. And then finally, Onyx Hunt. Guys, I've said it before. There's no other piece of gear that is as vital to everything that I do as an outdoorsman as my Onyx 
hunt app. It goes with me into the woods every time I go. I was super dependent on Onyx for these turkey hunts that I've been on these last couple of days. Even here in Georgia. Like, I know the ground decently well, but to hear a bird gobble, be able to pull up a topo map and put together a game plan for how I can circle around the bird, use a logging road over here to make some ground up really, really quickly, get behind him over here, get to this high point where I think he's headed, all of that good stuff. Onyx makes all of that really, really simple. You should go check them out, onyxmaps.com, or you can find them on the app store of your choice and get a seven-day free trial today if you're not already using Onyx. If you are already using Onyx, then you should consider upgrading to their elite membership. The perks and bonuses of that membership just keep on growing. So go check them out, onyxmaps.com. Now, guys, with all of those commercials out of the way, here's my conversation talking all things food plots with Dr. Grant Woods. All right, joining me for this week's episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast is Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer TV. Grant, thanks for coming on the show. Josh, thanks for having me. Always good to visit with you. Absolutely, man. I, I, uh, I've had you on the Wisconsin Sportsman podcast, where last time we talked, we talked about the state of the wild turkey and wild turkey conservation and what we can do on the landscape to try to help the wild turkey along. Uh, I guess it's been maybe a little over a year since we talked last, and a lot has happened, it seems, in the turkey conservation space. At least there's been a lot of conversation going on. So I'm curious, before we jump into talking food plots and deer and all that good stuff, how are you feeling and thinking about the future of the wild turkey with, uh, you know, everything that's happened over the past year, year and a half or so? Yeah, you're, you're right. A lot of people talking about it, paying attention now. I call it a mixed bag. Uh, for example, here, you know, on, on our new property, quote-unquote new property, we're about 875 acres. And we've caught 130-plus raccoons, possums, and skunks. That turns out to a predator every six acres. Wow. So to those that say trapping has no role, it doesn't matter how good your habitat is. If there's a predator every six acres, and we know that, uh, you know, hens can lay approximately 10 eggs, so that's 10 days on the ground from the first egg, and incubate about 28 days. And then it's about 14 days where those pokes are big enough to fly and roost off the ground. That's 52 days on the ground from that first egg to safety of a tree, if that's safe, given owls. But um, when you've got that kind of predator population, you know, it, one time during 52 days, some predators getting close enough downwind of that nest to, to say, hey, there's a, there's a McTurkey over there and I'm going to go have some dinner. So um, I do think improved habitat. I'm a huge habitat guy. We work on that, but it's a combination, at least in some areas, because predator populations by a lot of studies and, you know, a lot of thoughts are just an all time high, including snakes, crows, stuff like that. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point that you bring up. And, you know, there's been a lot of that conversation of, it's almost an overcorrection. Uh, cause you know, trapping has, was kind of the, at least for social media, right? Like that was kind of the beginning of conversations about Turkey. And we didn't talk a lot about habitat, but we talked a lot about predator management. Um, and so I think now the pendulum, as I'm, as I'm listening to different things and watching different things, has swung in the other direction where they're like, don't even worry about the predators until you get your habitat under control. And it's like, you know, because of this study or that study, but with a limited number of studies and with the difficulty of studying predation, period, um, I think we might be taking too many answers from from the studies, if that makes sense. And, and I'm not, yeah, a, I'm not a scientist, but at the end of the day, 
Uh, it, it certainly seems like removing predators can't hurt. And you never know with, with those areas, the beginning predator population, like you said, one predator taken out for every six acres. You know, who's to say that these studies were anywhere close to the population of predators that you were starting with? Yeah, we never know. We do, There's a lot of stuff we do know. Several states, including Missouri, uh, do a predator survey every year where they put out scent stations and, you know, sand or something down below there. And then uh, the scent, of course, attracts predators just like to a trap. But the, someone will go every morning to that site. And there's, I think, hundreds of these across Missouri at a certain time of year, same time every year. And they look for tracks. So they say, oh, coon, a possum, or whatever, come here. And they have that data. Hmm. So we know that predator population is on a steep rise in Missouri. That's not questionable. And we have less habitat, right? So it's compounding. We also know that in these are round numbers, someone's going to correct me in a year, get some hate mail or get some email. <laughs> but roughly uh, 20 years ago, roughly uh, about 200,000 raccoon pelts were sold in Missouri. That just that, wow. you know, that year, from that trapping season, 200,000 statewide. And last year, I think there was 3,000 and they barely brought a dollar a piece. So, Wow. There, any way you slice it, any, any way you slice it, there's no avoiding the conversation about predators. Any way you slice it. I, to my colleagues out there, any way you slice this, there is no avoiding the predator conversation. Yeah, man, that's a really, really good point. And a good way, I think, to get us kicked off here, I think people can see from this uh, answer, as we've been talking about, number one, your knowledge about wildlife management as a whole but number two, your passion for it. That's one of the things that first grew me, drew me to watching Growing Deer uh, TV was every week or every episode that would come out, you could always feel your passion and your love for the outdoors, for the habitat and for the animals just as much as for hunting them. You know, hunting, this wasn't all a means to the end of hunting. It was all one big package for you, which I thought was just fantastic. Such a, It was such a draw to me. So why don't you tell the listeners, if they're not familiar with you, a little bit about your yourself and your background and growing Deer TV and sort of where all that came from? Yeah, just real briefly. I was, I'm in Missouri now. I've got my branch from Missouri, and I was raised about 45 minutes from here on that little family farm, about 100 acres. I deal wildlife habitat because weeds and fence rows are big and no herbicide fields were weedy. So it was really good quail. We, I grew up a quail hunter and a rabbit hunter. There were no deer in the county where I was raised. And I heard at a, I don't know, barbershop or, you know, somewhere that they were going to restock deer in the county. And sometime later, I remember so clearly right before Christmas break, I was in first grade and I had my trap line. Now these were little homemade box rabbit traps and, you know, I didn't catch anything, but I get up every morning dutifully run my trap line. Like I was a big Yukon trapper out there, you know, and <laughs> it was cold that morning. And I went down this little hole in this little field. I think it was Milo, if I remember right, Stan Milo, and checked my trap. And I found a female fawn that had been shot in the head. And ever since that moment, I actually believe it was divine, you know, looking back at my career now as no man. But uh, I've been just passionate about deer and really dislike lawbreakers, people that violate game rules, stuff like that. And so that just stuck in my brain. And, and I'm 61, so uh, guys my age, I want to be in the Army or be a policeman, all very honorable. I just wanted to work with deer. There wasn't really a term deer biologist back then. Mm. So I just stayed with me and I went to a little small local college and really have a wildlife program. But I took all the biology classes somewhat related to wildlife and got a job working in Nevada quickly with BLM. And this is young people listening or whoever, who you run around with is so important to your future. 
And I happen to be blessed with two great bosses in Nevada, uh, Bureau of Land Management. Be careful to see BLM anymore, but Bureau of Land Management. And they really understood wildlife and good science, really good science. Why are we doing this? Why can we justify doing this? And that really set my path on a career to do better. And then I got accepted in the University of Georgia, which is a real powerhouse wildlife school. And Dr. Larry Markson was my mentor, just a, you know, a pillar in the deer world. And, and Dr. Carl Miller, who uh, had just graduated time, another huge pillar. And then I w- was there and I went to Clemson and Dr. Dave Gwynn. So I'm just really doing the work of, of people that gave me good thoughts and put science in my brain as a proper way to do science. Not just publish more, but is it really meaningful? Are we learning anything here? And so those men really just, I owe them a a debt I can't repay. They really just helped me understand science and I never lost my passion for deer. So you have to have passion along with knowledge to really excel. Not that I've excelled, but those two things have really helped me. Yeah. Wow. I, I think it's safe to say you've excelled at this point because man, you have influenced, I think, the way so many guys um, are approaching their, their, their hunting land now. It's so much different than it was a decade or 15 years ago. And not only have you influenced those guys, but you've influenced a lot of folks now who are also have shows or have podcasts or have this and that and have changed the way that they view you know, the, their, the landscape and the way that they communicate when it comes to deer and talking about deer hunting. So, uh, in the last year, though, so growing deer has been around for how long? I think 13 or 14 years. Okay, so it's, yeah. it, it's been around there for a good while. You had some yeah. recent developments over the last year where folks really got to know a property you called the Proving Grounds. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that process and, and kind of how yeah. you came to your decision? Yeah, so my, my wife, Tracy, Tracy and I were – over time, over 20 years, people just think, boy, you know, I, I'm going to be a bass fisher. I'm going to buy the biggest bass boat out there. It usually doesn't happen that way. So over 20 years, Tracy and I built a little metal building, and that was our home and our office where we raised our girls and our shop and our basketball court, you know, all combined on this little rocky farm in Missouri. And over time, as an adjoining property might come for sale, we'd try to buy it, didn't get them all over a 20-year period of time, we put together a pretty good-sized chunk of land, about 2,500 acres. Um, and, and people said, oh, he's born what they are. But remember, we're living in a little metal place. No one's driving a new vehicle. It's just where your passion is, what your, what your priorities are. Sure. And, and, and the front 1,500 acres was pretty nice. I mean, I'd spent 20 years of just, you know, fire and, and thinning trees, timber, and, and building food plots and doing whatever we could. And it, I'll, I'll just tell you, it's pretty nice. Could have been better. You know, there's always budget constraints and time constraints, but it was in this area producing bigger deer than average and a lot of turkeys and, you know, no one would say, oh, I don't want to hunt there. Mm. And and we had this land on the back of the property, roughly 800 acres or more, that was just a long ways down the creek and not a great road system. Get there and it's full of cedars and Lespedeza and, you know, all of um, multiple rows, all stuff I really enjoy killing and, and improving the habitat, restoring the natives. And I just kind of got the idea of, well, I, I would like a new project. I like watching stuff develop rapidly. When you're fine-tuning that very last paint stroke, it's a slow process. But when you start from scratch, you can see progress yearly. And, and I said, Tracy, why don't we sell this northern part? And, and by the way, folks, we try to live debt-free, literally. So, you know, let's be really candid. So it wasn't like a bank loan or something like that was holding us down. 
and let someone else enjoy this that wants to enjoy it. I look at it like wildlife art. I'm not a guy that has real fancy wildlife art. I got pictures of my kids back here, but not any fancy wildlife art because I want to take those resources and go on my next adventure. I don't do a lot of taxidermy because I want to take those resources and go to my next adventure. Not that I don't like good taxidermy. I just would rather take those resources and go chase another critter. Sure. Uh, so, so Trace and I decided to sell this. We worked with National Land Realty and we thought, you know, well, we've got a couple of years. I don't need to worry about that. And doggone, I mean, they had that baby so quick. And Chris, the new owner, is a great guy, great neighbor, because, you know, nothing separating us but an old barbed wire fence that's down more than it's up. And the new owner, Chris, turned out to be a great guy and kind of shares our passion and all good stuff. And so, yeah, here we are at 61, starting over. Tracy gets a new house, and I got a new project, and we're all going. And so we've been felling cedars and doing this spring. We've done about 200 acres of prescribed fire. We're just starting. And I'm excited about it because I can share – you know, I, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. So I think I can get the proven grounds too, as we call this property, to the same level as the proving grounds, but much, much quicker. Because I've already made all those errors. I'll, I'll still make yeah. more mistakes, but I don't have to make those ones I've already made again. So I'm excited to see how fast can you turn the property around. That really motivates me. Yeah, that's a really, really uh, interesting piece there is to see just how quickly can we get it to where we want it to be. Because man, I mean, you can make a lot of changes to a property overnight. You bring in some heavy machinery. A lot of things can change real rapidly, but that doesn't mean that the the property has finished responding to what you've done. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it takes time. Yeah, we don't have time. that budget to, for all that big yellow equipment. I don't know if you can see, but, you know, we got calluses as well. We have, we got chainsaws <laughs> and backpack blowers and things like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, Leading in or before making this decision, you know, you had that back part of the property, let's let's call it, that you weren't really improving. It was just access that was kind of keeping you from it, or or was and it just we had to budget keep this place really on the top of its game and start from scratch. You know, sure. it's just just being I'm just very honest, you know, just the real realities of it is we had hunted back there a little bit and we'd scratched out a couple of food plots, but it wasn't anything like the original property. Yeah. So how long did it so, take? How long did it take you to get the proving grounds to to where it was? Like, did you did you buy it and immediately start making those changes to get it where you wanted? And it kind of took you the whole time, or did were you kind of slower at the start? And like I say, it's not quite done. Chris will carry on, but you know, budgets change over time. So the first year, I think I had I, I don't remember, but two or three acres of food plots. So we ended up with about eighty some odd when it was all said and done. So. And it wasn't like there was one big year where we added 20. Every year we'd try to do another two or three acres or do a deal with a buddy that had some heavy equipment, you know, and all. I help you, you knock some trees down for me type deal or something. Yeah. So, and we worked with the NRCS, uh, National Resource Conservation Service. They have a bunch of funding called EQIP, Environmental Quality Improvement Program. And in my area, eastern red cedars are very invasive. So they, they, didn't, they don't pay for it all, but they have what they call cost share funding. You got some skin in the game too. And, we applied for some of those and got some grants that help us cedars on the original property, but not the whole place at once. So I think a lot of people get impatient. You know, they buy land and they want it to be Mark Drury's place the next day. It's not, it's just not going to happen because I know Mark well. I work with Mark and on habitat stuff. And, you know, all of us spend a lot of time, even if you have differing levels of resources, you can only speed up nature so quickly. That's right. So, uh, but yeah, we we were 21 years into it and made more progress as 
as my company grew and we had a little bit bigger budget, but that's not, it's not just money. I also learned more efficiencies mm. and how to do stuff better and when to burn to get the response I wanted out of native vegetation. It's not just burning. We, we spent all these decades teaching people prescribed fire is okay. I was in New York yesterday working. It's still illegal to do prescribed fire. As a landowner in New York, I'm not talking about a permit. It's just illegal, period. Wow. And New York needs a big old match. I mean, there's so many invasive species in the timber and thick woods and whatnot. It really needs some fire, but it's illegal. Recently, Pennsylvania just made it legal. So those of us that live in states where we have a few more freedoms, we kind of take that for granted. But that's not the case everywhere. Yeah, I know a guy uh, that I, I do some work with as part of the network that, that we provide podcasts for, uh, John Teeter, White to Landscapes out in New York. And in his most recent episode, he's talking about prescribed fire. And uh, he was doing some burning and he goes, not that I was in New York burning. I wasn't, I wasn't burning in New York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was really clear to, to emphasize on his show. Hey, I wasn't doing this in New York. I was somewhere else, you know, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. man, yeah. what a, what a, what a thing to, to have a place where it's just totally illegal. Um, how close would you say the proving grounds was to maximizing that potential? Like, were you at like the 98, 99% mark or would, where would you put it? No, I don't think so because there's always environmental factors of drought or a, you know, a, a late snow or something. So I don't know, let's call it 85, 90, somewhere in there. It was good. You know, we're, we're, I think, and I'm not a big score guy, but here's just a way to kind of get a relative index. So when Trace and I purchased the property, it's split by county line stone, you know, how rocket is stone County and Taney County. Um, for those of y'all out there that have been to Branson, we're just north of Branson, Missouri, and you drive through all those big rock cuts and the highways getting there and going fishing and stuff like that. Um, and so um, it was really rough, but I looked up the Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett records, and, and not all deer are registered, but back in the day, if you killed a big deer, you, you probably paid your $25 and registered. It was, it was more of a thing back in the day than it is now. And, uh, and so anyway, the, the biggest buck recorded I'm just saying recorded was 131 inches. So, you know, we've had our hands on 170 inch deer. We did not harvest the biggest deer. I hope the new landowner does that. Our rascal is so nocturnal. I just, you know, I, I just <laughs> had to leave him here. I had to wave goodbye because that rascal just outsmarted me. So long ways from 130 being the record of the area, not saying it was, but at least recorded data and, and harvesting, you know, those, those 140, 150 classes with regularity and throwing out some even bigger bucks. It, remember, there's no ag here. You sure. never see a combine. You don't see any any grain silos. This is timber country. This is timber country. And not production timber. There's a lot of clear cuts. This is just timber, low-quality low timber and fescue pasture. That's what we have here. Wow. And so to, to make the jump from, you know, 120s and 130s class deer up to you know, having a reasonable expectation that your land is going to produce 140 and 150 inch deer every year, uh, man, that speaks volumes to not only the habitat, but also just the, the what is it, the, the National Deer Association says the most, the, the most um, difficult half inch of, yeah, of management right is the here, trigger yeah. finger, you know, the motion of the trigger finger. And, and I think that just speaks volumes to letting bucks just get a little older. It sure does. So, so age is the biggest determinant of antler size. Everyone wants to talk genetics, which we don't really know that much about. And then quality of forage. So there can be a glass ceiling. We often hear about glass ceilings in certain businesses or salary caps, whatever. But, and I've done this. I've actually published this years and years ago. But we had a project in South Carolina 
for 11 years in an aluminum plant right in the middle and 6,000 acres around it. And I was actually in graduate school when I started it. And I needed to harvest X number of deer to check for pollution coming out of smokestacks. And whatever I did with the rest of the herd, I was allowed to do. They really wanted the herd taken down a little bit because there was a road coming this big aluminum refinery from either way, and there's a lot of car deer accidents. So it was a safety hazard for employees and vendors and stuff like that. So I set out, and this was, of course, uh, started maybe 1990, 1991, long time ago. I'm, I'm like member 18 of the old QMA and now NDA. So, I, you know, I'm an old man, and I'm, wow. I, I went through all these preachings and People almost want to fist fight you because you're talking about shooting does. I lived that. I didn't wow. hear about it. I lived it. So, so I did something really radical. Maybe the first person to do it down there. I don't know. But uh, for my team, where we were getting paid to harvest these deer and do research, we harvested five does for every buck. You did not get a buck tag. Now, this was not South Carolina rules. This is Grant's rules. The seasons are so liberal, I could do this. You had to harvest five does before you got a buck tag for 11 years. Wow. And we wow. took that property from not producing very good deer to much better deer. Sandy, I'm 17 miles off the coast in Charleston, South Carolina. Sandy soil, you know, no ag. But we, about, I don't know, year five or six, we realized that our seven-year-old bucks, or our five-year-old bucks or whatever, were about the same size as our two-year-old bucks. We hit a glass ceiling. There was no more nutrients. And they started doing more burning, and we started a food up. They were doing a little food plot program just to attract deer out so you could see them. Just, you know, some wheat, just some old barn run wheat and no fertilizer. And we started really, I asked them, can I take over the food plot program? Can I really up this? Can I make this better? And added more acres and whatnot. And we started harvesting bigger deer. And that was a, another key point in my development as a professional. And I, I call this practitioner. So, I, you know, I had the schooling. I went to Georgia and Clemson. Great guys, great mentors and gal mentors. That will only take you so far. You have to have boots on the ground. You have to see how do they respond to these certain things. With And like my PhD was about four years old, my four years long, my master's was two years long. That's great. Kids are doing them. It's a wonderful experience. But when you're involved in a project 11 years and you see all the changes and floods and droughts and hurricanes and literally Hurricane Hugo and everything else, that's when you start learning. So I'm a huge fan of, you have to have a baseline of knowledge, academic knowledge, huge, obviously huge fan. But the practitioners take that a step further. Mm-hmm. And if we think this through, and this has been more of a recent revelation to me, but when we look at a lot of new things, it's really changed society over time. Not all of it come out of a university lab. A lot of times it's a practitioner and then the university verifies it. Which is also a fine process. As a practitioner, it could be a one-off. And all of that work, this is great, but it only worked because the conditions were just right that day and whatever we're talking about here. But, uh, and, and so I read a lot. When I go back and read a lot of the stuff, big, big, you know, heavy, heavy books, practitioners have been world changers. And I think it's sad that our students, our wildlife students, I'm sure it's true for accounting or, you know, other fields too, aren't doing more internships or we're not in more trade schools or whatever because we need boots on the ground. I think our society reflects this. We, we got all these theories. It worked in an economic book. Well, folks, it's not working really good right now. I'm just not being political. It's just not working. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we need some practice. We need some practitioners. We need people that have done it and got a bloody nose or busted their knuckle and whatever field we're talking about here. Like mm-hmm. I would not want 
I mean, this guy just got, I'm a kidney transplant patient. A lot of people know that. And I don't want the guy just graduated from some, you know, awesome medical school and he 4.77, he's off the charts. You know, he made points you can't even make and the teachers all love him, but he's never cut on someone. I don't want that guy doing a kidney transplant on me. Yep. Yep. No, I, I totally get that. So my, my background and I, I know we have uh, similar convictions. So I went to seminary and then went into yeah. pastoral ministry for 12 years and yeah. saw the same thing there of like, boy, we need, we need a few people to step out of the academy for a little while and go and, and get their hands dirty with, with parishioners and individuals uh, yeah. week in and week out and more people sitting by hospital beds to be the ones that are writing these theology books and pastoral ministry books. So, but that's going to get me off on a whole tangent. So we're here though, to talk about food plots. You mentioned it briefly, how you, um, you know, scratched out some food plots at the beginning of the proving grounds and, and sort of increased over the years. And then you're obviously your food plot experience on this property in South, South Carolina, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the proving grounds and where you began food plotting. Eventually where I want us to end up is talking about what, what you're now calling the release method. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so I want to get to that because as I talk with different people, so many folks are curious, where do I start? Like, give me a, a, a one, two, three of how do I turn my food plotting from, I throw out some buck forage oats sometime around September and hope for yeah. the best, right? How do I go from there to, uh, you know, a fully formed uh, food plotting program where I'm improving the soil, improving the habitat, uh, and providing, you know, food for wildlife and habitat for wildlife all year round. So where did you get your, your start with all of that? That's a, all that was great. So, you know, Trace and I are living in this metal building, and the first food plot I did was right behind it because I want to be able to see it, right? I wasn't necessarily going to hunt. I want to see, I love deer. I'm passionate about deer. I want to see deer. So, I had a, 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 at that time, I didn't know him, but those guy, it was locust trees and, you know, gnat, cedars and gnarliness out there. It just, the ranch Trace and I bought, the only reason we got here, I think, oh boy, Grant was rich, but Trace and I were living in South Carolina, and we come back to see my family. I mentioned I was from here. And we were looking for some land, and she found this in a real estate book, and we called a realtor to come look. Anyway, short story is, a, a guy had died and left this old burnout cattle ranch to a hospital. And, and to this day, I've never walked a property. I mean, I've worked from Canada to New Zealand, literally. I've never walked a property that has some of these cattle skeletons on it where they starved to death. Mm. That's how poor this land was. Wow. Literally. Look me in the eye. Literally. Wow. And so it's just, you know, just raw. Literally just raw. And so I had a buddy knock down these locust trees where they'd fed cattle by the old barn here. And, you know, it's just trampled gravel. It's just yucky. And I make a food plot there. And of course, you couldn't disc it. And I, hired, I went to MFA, Missouri Farmer Association, because I'm from that academic background. Oh, I got to give me some N, P, and K out there. And, you know, I bought a, a load of fertilizers that go spread it based on my calculations from my textbooks and soil tests whatnot, and the guy comes out and makes one loop around the field and drives out my driveway, doesn't stop. And I'm chasing the guy down the road because, you know, I got a limited amount of money, and part of my money is in back that guy's fertilizer truck. And anyway, he says, your land's too rough. I'm not tearing up my equipment for somebody's food plot. You know, like food plot was a nasty, you know, like leprosy or something, you know. Mm. And so I got mad, and um, I'm older now. I don't get mad so easy. And I drive down to Arkansas to post this tractor dealer, and I'm going to get me a buggy to pull behind my tractor and spread more fertilizer. And I get in there and there's this, I still friends with this guy today, great Mennonite guy. And he's of course calm, like you might expect. He's like, well, you're, you're kind of wound up, Mr. Woods. What's wrong with you? You know, and he's just really sage advice. You know, I said, well, you know, I was going to rain. I was trying to get fertilizer in my food plot, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, 
my uncle Galen down the road here, I'm thinking, where's this story going? You know, <laughs> my uncle Galen makes chicken compost, turkey litter, you know, poo poo compost. And he's crazy. You're driving the hill you got. I think you're driving that hill where they're going to go. And that's a lot cheaper than buying a stainless steel fertilizer buggy. And I didn't care anything. You know, I heard compost. I thought compost, you took your garbage and put it in a bag and put some worms in there or something. So, so I go meet Uncle Galen. He's even older and more sage. And Galen and I are still good friends to the day. And he starts telling me about all the stuff they do in the microbes and microbes freeing up nutrition from soil. And so I, you never probably ever hear me say this again, but I had finished a PhD at pretty high ranking schools and had, and, you know, solar plasma, all that. never heard any of this. Wow. I mean, none. That's what I'm talking about getting your fingers in the dirt. And so Galen, I hired Galen because it's cheaper, not because I believed him because it was cheaper. And he comes up here and spreads the stuff. And man, on rock, I'm growing pretty good crops and deer eating and whatnot. So I developed a relationship with Galen that went for many years. Now, I don't use that product anymore because Galen's recipe was so awesome. We sold it to another guy and it was out of state and the shipping fees were just cost prohibitive for me to use it. But I got a taste of microbes and what was potential in the soil, releasing the soil's potential, if you will. And also, I had no disc. I didn't have that great a tractor. I had no disc. So I went to the local NRCS office, and they rented no-till drills. And I started no-tilling now the fall because you couldn't rent a disc, but you could rent a drill. And so that's the, the, the genesis. And over time... Through Galen's help and other people's help and reading, I started improving my techniques and improving my techniques. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but me and another guy started the company Biologic and I actually ended up selling that out to Mossy Oak and was with them for several years, still no toxic, great guy. And, and we went from, if you remember, the, the starting of Biologic, you're that old, we went from just selling, you know, buck for a or a weed or whatever to blends. Mm-hmm. And, and we introduced brassicas, which were kind of weird back then. Uh, and I got that from going to New Zealand and working with deer farmers in New Zealand. And I mean, they're going these, they're going for commercial purposes, these huge deer and elk and red stag and all these other things. And they're filled with these brassicas and whatnot, not just turnips, but different varieties of brassicas. So all these things put together in my experiences led me to do that to the point now where I realized that in my textbooks, we were always taught that it takes a thousand years make an inch of dirt you think about that a thousand years to make an inch of dirt and i think that's true if you you know you take some limestone or granite and sell on your porch for it to weather down and make dirt probably take a thousand years i don't know no one's lived that long right but we know now that we can build dirt by using these practices and i'm here to prove i'm probably building a quarter inch a year a really nutrient rich just black smells good looks good dirt a quarter inch a year is huge because we're going from, and some professors still believe this, but they get laughed at because many farmers, about five to 10% of farmers nationwide now are using these practices and they're infinitely more profitable because they're not putting all those synthetics in their soil. They're not having runoff. They're not polluting the local streams. And we were all taught in PNK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but the bulk of a plant is carbon. Mm. Carbon's the number one element in the plant. And, and this is not my field of science. I'm going to go very far here, but we hear all the, you know, the nightly news, carbon, the carbon, the world's ending carbon, carbon. Folks, we don't have carbon. We're all going to die tomorrow. Mm, yep. Period. Because that's the number one plant food on the planet. Period. Now, the problem is we've been disking for so long. Carbon makes soil black, black rich soil. Everyone relates to that. When you disk, that actually releases carbon in the atmosphere. 
when you have growing plants, we think about photosynthesis. Probably everyone learned that in seventh grade or something. We think about that simple recipe, C6, that's six carbons, H12O6. C6, H12O6. Plants, every day they're green and photosynthesized and are pumping carbon in the soil. You drive through, pick your state, Illinois, Iowa, northern Missouri, Pennsylvania, you know, South Carolina, anywhere, and it's in the wintertime, there's almost never a cover crop. You've got land just leaking carbon in the atmosphere. And these studies are done. They're not arguable. You're not going to hear this on nightly news. You're not going to hear it. But one of the major contributors worldwide to carbon in the air is our farming practices. Not that, oh, my gosh, Grant drives a V8 truck. Lord have mercy. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'll <laughs> yeah. stop there. Yeah. Anyway. No, that, that's... So we got to get, we have to have plants growing and we need healthy forests, folks. We're not thinning our forest. We got trees dying or sick trees and sick trees aren't feeding as much. So we're not pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, walking around a forest, all the crowns are little bitty packed tight together. And I'm not being facetious. When Daniel Boone wrote his journal when he was going across Kentucky, couple things he talked about hearing turkeys about hundreds every day he never had a day he didn't hear turkeys goblin summer fall he didn't have a day to hear turkeys goblin he did not see raccoons he did not talk about ticks lewis and clark did not talk about ticks if ticks were as bad as they are now they'd be writing water these little things crawling off some sucking blood out of us none of his boards were talking about ticks because there was fire all the time there was fire we're resetting the habitat early succession so we can look at these historical documents, Daniel Boone, there's, there, in my area, the guy that come through here was Schoolcroft, and he was looking for lead mines. He was kind of a literate fur trapper type guy, and he kept a little journal like Lewis and Clark. If you don't live here in Missouri, you probably never heard of Schoolcroft, but he was like the Lewis and Clark of this area. He never talked about a tick. If you walk out now without permethrin, about a quarter inch deep on your pants, ticks are like, Wow. So we know, we know what to do, and we know how the creator made this to work. Right. So the release process is simply me and the other bright people feeding into me. Galen started it. Other people come on since Galen. Um, teaching me that we're trying to force our way, synthetic fertilizers, synthetic herbicides, all this stuff. And if we follow, you know, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, if we follow the creator's plan for the environment based on written documentation, I don't think even after doubts, Lewis and Clark made that journey. No, no, no one doubts Bartram went down the coast. I mean, no, no one doubts this. You can read the original writings if you can get it out of museum. You can touch these. So this is fact, folks. Do we agree with all our observations? I mean, Daniel Boone spelled like I spell, right? B-A-R is bear. I mean, Daniel, Daniel and I would have been buddies. We spell just the same. But we know what it looked like, and we know how these systems function. Yes, there's billions more people now, but that doesn't change the system. So where we have natural areas, we know how to manage them and we can do better. And that's the release process. I just started applying these natural systems to food plots. And does it work every year? No. I mean, if it doesn't rain in 19 weeks, things are going to get ugly out there, folks. But my soils recover much quicker because my soils are like a sponge and the first moisture or heavy dew or whatever, I'm going to survive the drought better. I will say that because I've witnessed it. You know, I've lived it. So the release process is simply applying five or six, let me break it down, real simple principles based on watching nature, if you will. 
and I'm not the only one. I mean, there's Gabe Brown's a real famous farmer, David Brandt, a friend of mine, Ray Archuleta, worked for the NRCS for 30 years. And the NRCS was so resistant to these principles that Ray, Ray came out of an academic world like I did. And he's thinking it's a thousand years to make an inch of soil and, you know, cattle or the worst thing we could do to the planet and all these things. Turns out just the opposite. Folks, we, we had 60 million bison by the best estimates on the Great Plains. 60 million bison. Bison are big animals, bigger than a cow. 60 million bison. No one was fertilizing. No one was cutting hay. No one was adding lime. There was no herbicide, pesticide, fungicide, insecticide. There's more, there were more bison than there are cattle now. And look at all the work we do now. And would you rather eat a natural bison or a natural white-tailed deer that's not eating herbicide, not eating fungicide, not eating insecticide, not eating plants grown on synthetic chemicals, mm. made at a high cost of petroleum, by the way, or do you want to plan out there eating really good quality native vegetation? So one last thing, I'm preaching, I'm sorry, but one last thing, when you follow the release process, this is so important, please tune in. Those plants are nutrient-rich because they're acting in the soil with the microbes as they should. Now, science has learned that a lot of our childhood diseases that you and I probably never heard about when we were kids, you know, you got a spanking and you went on. There was no attention deficit syndrome. You, you use your mama's hand and, and you straighten up real quick, right? I mean, I'm just, these are just yeah. facts, folks. You know, send me hate mail. They're just facts. But there are other issues because spinach right now, on average, has about 40% less iron in it than it did just a couple of decades ago because we've depleted the soils. Wow. There are oranges that have way less or no vitamin C in them because we've depleted soils. And there are orange groves in California that have went back, you know, Orange groves, they sprayed everything between the trees. They want no competition, just oranges, only produce oranges. And now the better orange groves, man, they're planting cover crops. They got pollinators. They got sheep in there urinating, defecating, and salivating. That's how we get the microbes back in the soil. They got cattle in there grazing. And those oranges are some of the most nutritious ever tested. We know how to do it. But you want to eat out of Grant Woods' garden or someone practicing this, man, my and here's how I do my garden. This sounds way out there. I take 60 different varieties of veggies. I get milpuds from green cover, and it's replicating what the ancient Incas and other Native American tribes did. You've probably heard about sister squash and corn and all that. Um, 60 different veggies, you know, melon, squash, all kinds of beans, peas. In one bag, I put it in my no-till drill, and I drive the edge of the food plot so Miss Tracy doesn't have to wait out the middle to pick her veggies. And it's like hunting. You get your five-gallon bucket, and, you know, you're wading waist-deep, and there could be ticks or copperheads or whatever, and you're, oh, there's some green beans. Oh, there's a yellow quick-neck squash. Well, well, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to pick it and eat it anyway. I mean, it is so cool. I don't have little narrow rows. I'm not putting any fertilizer on my garden. I'm not out there going, well, i got to kill this insect. i got to kill this insect to eat my squash. And here's the actual truth. Tracy, because she likes to grow and put some squash plants right behind our house in a little flower bed, diatomaceous earth on there trying to keep the squash bugs off. 33 yards away is my food plot. Squash is in that blend I'm talking about. No sign of squash bugs out there because when plants grow together, they communicate and they feed off the pheromones. You think about pheromones and deer, the pheromones of each other. And when you have a very vibrant insect community, there's more predators than prey. And the predators will eat the prey. Wow. That's my insecticide. I love seeing spider, you know, on the, that dewy morning in August, September, when spider webs really show up really well and they're just glistening early morning in the field. 
That's my spray truck. Those spiders are killing the predators of my plants. That's my spray truck. It's cheap, folks. I mean, you know, so I'm not paying for fertilizer, herbicide, insecticide, fungicide. And that lets Miss Tracy allow me to make more food plots because I spend all that money on other stuff. So, Hey, guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point-of-view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with a 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. I love that. It, it's like... It's like when we try to maximize efficiency for even for things like planting our vegetables, right? We're trying to maximize efficiency, trying to bring some order from the chaos that was there. We, we pretty much just messed everything up because that jumbled what, what to many might look like, man, that's a jumbled mess of plants. Well, in reality, it's, it's, it's giving those plants everything that they need because it's a, a more diverse community, therefore a more diverse insect community. Therefore, we're not having to worry about, like you said, the squash plants that'll just about tear up everything in your garden if you if you let them get yeah. if you let them get after yeah. it. So, well, man, let let's talk about some of the essential tenets of the release process. You 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 mentioned them briefly, and if people can't tell by now, it's all about soil health and, and maximizing that soil health and releasing the soil to do what it's supposed to do, what it's designed yeah. to do, what it's what it has naturally in its capabilities already. Uh, you're not trying to sell people something. You're you're giving them a process for here's how you can help it do what it already wants to do, what the soil is already meant to be doing. So let's talk about some of those. Yeah, I got no products for sale, folks. I don't have a little magic black box widget that's going to make you grow bigger deer. I, I have no products for sale. So if you come up with one of those, though, let me know because we'll talk about that too. But in the meantime, me we'll, me we'll settle for this. Yeah, me too. Someone's going. Let me know. Uh, okay, so let's just take our natural observations. Make this real simple. If you grade out your house or something and you don't do, you know, you decide not to build whatever, weeds start growing. Because God built soil to always be covered. You have to have plants taking that carbon out of the air and putting it in soil to feed the microbes. Yep. And the principle here is microbes, they're not photosynthesizing, so they can't make carbon, but they can break down rock or parent soil material and get in P and K and molybdenum and zinc and all these other things. So those microbes literally go in and out of a plant root and say, hey, I'll give you some phosphorus if you need it. They know from the plant hormones, if you give me carbon, there's an interchange. There's a, there's a economy under the soil. It's the world's largest economy, by the way, by far. So we don't want our soil. We want something growing as many days out of year as it can be. It's 40 below. Nothing's growing. As soon as it warms up, we want it already growing. We don't have to wait to plant. We want growth. Second, if you leave that place bare, it's going to erode. Raindrops hitting it, wind blowing on it, it's going to erode. We want the soil covered every day out of here. So I know till and use a crimper. I never want to see my soil unless I go looking for it. I, I, it needs to be covered. 
Third, when we look at any native prairie, the, the last vestiges of native prairie in America, or here where we've cut cedars and burned, we've identified over 170 native grasses and forbs at the Proven Grounds. Okay? You need diversity because different plants leak. It's called exudates. Different strengths of carbonic acid. Remember, they're all leaking carbon into the soil to feed the microbes. They leak different strengths of carbonic acid, and those different strengths of carbonic acids are going to free up different nutrients. So I never plant monocultures. I plant, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, or my garden, 60 different species at once. Because when you look at any native prairie or any native forest, there's a diversity of species out there, not a monoculture. So that's kind of the third principle, okay? And then the fourth principle, uh, and this is a little bit out of order, but hoof mammals or livestock needs to interact because you think about a deer, you know, you may have shot a little bit too far to the left one time and you're eviscerating or gutting a deer and there's all that green smelly stuff in there. Well, about a teaspoon of that rumen content has about a trillion bacteria in it. Way more, one teaspoon of that has way, way more living organisms than all the people on the planet manifold over. Well, deer, if you ever watch them close, maybe you're watching a button buck or something close, they're, they're sloppy eaters. They salivate all the time. And they urinate and they defecate. Buffalo did, deer do, you know, all these critters do. And that's kind of replenishing the microbes in the soil all the time. Because all those microbes come out of rumen or the gut of a critter. And when you have different critters on the land, you're getting different sources of microbes out there. So, uh, Ray, my friend Ray Archuleta, who is brilliant, he says, kind of looking back at this, that dirt without a plant can only be dirt. I'm paraphrasing. But when you add plants, you can make soil. Mm. Because dirt is just chemistry. And all of our colleges, or almost all of them, have taught chemistry in soil classes for decades now. We need to be talking life. I want to get up and think, I got this from Gabe Brown, how much life is on my farm? Not what can I get up and kill today? Oh, what herbicide can I spray today? What pesticide can I spray today? I don't think anyone on the planet, unless you're a herbicide salesperson, goes, well, I think I'll go get me some Roundup today. Man, I'll, I'll, and, and I'm not anti-herbicide, folks. I look at herbicide like a root canal. If you've got a bad root canal and you don't address it, you're rot out some more teeth. No one wants that. So if you've got a really invasive, bad plant, you may need some herbicide to get that under control. But once you got your system from that manipulated state back to a more natural state, you can probably get out of using herbicide or at least cut it way, way down. Yeah, it's a hammer, not a paintbrush, right? We're, we, we may bring it in when we need some heavy lifting done, but it's not, it's not our first tool. Yeah, yeah. So those are some of the principles, and they're easy to apply. Now, I have a lot of little small food plots where I want to hunt. You know, there's no road there. It's back on a ridge I backpacked into. And so I can apply those principles and I won't make as much improvement rapidly, and I'll explain why in just a second. So I may take a backpack blower in or a hand rake, and I want to make a 30-yard little hidey old food plot because there's a big white oak over here drop, and I think, boy, if I add another traction, that bus will stop right here. I can get my bow shot just right. So I'm going to rake a fire break, and I'm going to remove that leaf litter. I need to remove the leaf litter and the weed litter so seeds can get in contact with the soil. So I've bared the soil, but remember, fire, the heat goes up, all the roots from those little saplings or weeds or whatever are still in the soil. And as soon as I do that, I'm going to broadcast some seed right before the next rain. I don't want to broadcast it a week before the rain because the dog on turkeys and cardinals and squirrels read up all my seeds. So it's just call it a buffet for those critters. I don't know how they find it so quick. And then raindrops falling 
will actually splash up a little dirt that causes erosion, and that will help cover my seed and make sure there's ample moisture for those seeds to germinate. And I think something that a lot of us, I've been guilty of this myself, we don't remember that seeds, because it looks so dormant, looks like gravel, but they're living organisms. They respirate. They're almost like a bear hibernating, not very much, but they're alive. And so if you throw something living out on a concrete parking lot, a hard clay field or something, and it doesn't rain, it's just out there in the sun, of course they're going to die. The germination rate or the amount of seeds they're going to survive are going to drop every day. So I like to, if I'm broadcasting seed, I like to do it right before or even during a rain. And, and that's my system for making these little hidey hole food plots with hand tools. And, and you don't even have to have gasoline. You can do it by hand. Now, if it's a bigger area, I like a backpack board because it's quicker than me raking leaves out of the way. But I'm just removing the duff and broadcasting at a heavy rate because squirrels and birds are going to eat some of your seed, even if it rains, before it germinates. And you can make awesome food plots in the timber. Now, if you want to do that on the 40-acre food plot program, you probably want some tools. You probably want something a little bit better to get that done in a more efficient manner. But we use that system every year, fall and spring, for our little hidey-ho, little small tucked-in food plots. Maybe we can't even get a tractor there. Or maybe it's just so small, you'd be turning around 40 times to get the job done. And that system, again, is replicating, because if we think about the buffalo going through tall vegetation, they trample it down. They're trampling it down and making that seed bed. And so seeds need to make contact with the soil. They will germinate if they're on top of those oak leaves, but the roots are not going to get in the soil, so they're starved to death. So we want to make sure the seeds make contact with the soil. Again, just replicating natural processes. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about if we, we really are wanting to, to build the soil uh, of, our, of our food plots. Let's say we've got larger food plots. Maybe they're not hidey hole kinds of plots. Uh, and we want to start employing some of this, some of these uh, these tenants. Is there a good time of year to start that's that's better than the other? Like, should should I kick this off with my fall planting? Should I kick it off with a spring planting? What should that look like? Great question. I'm not, either one works, but I'm going to hedge a little bit towards the fall just because there's typically less weed pressure in the fall. So if you're going from a traditional system of a lot of chemicals and fertilizer and a lot of disking, your soil is probably pretty stressed out probably pretty bad shape and, and stressed out soil has a lot of weeds in it because weeds are early survivors. That's what, that's what people ask. Well, why did God make weeds? You got something that will just grow anywhere in the harshest conditions to start healing the soil. Mm. I think that's weeds purpose. Yeah. And, and Galen, my man, he's so wise. I, Galen's probably not listening because he didn't do a lot of media, but I wish he would. He should be a guest actually. But, one time, Galen and I go down the road, and I'm kind of challenging him a little bit. You know, Galen and I can tease. We know each other well. I say, Galen, why do you think God made ticks? I thought I'd stump it, you know. Like, got it this time. <laughs> Galen said, well, Grant, I don't know for sure. He's such a gentleman. But, you know, when we used to have a lot of fire and stuff, tick populations were low. Tish pipe took out the weak animals. God's way of taking out the weak animals. I never heard that before. And I'm not saying it's right. But that's what a man of the earth knows. You know, a guy that's out there doing it every day, he thinks in these terms where those of us in the lab, we got our calculator out, you know, and we're trying to figure some regression model to figure this out. But a man of the land has time to think about these things. So it's just a big difference. Now, again, I'm not saying that's right. Oh, Grant Wood said, you know, I just. <laughs> oh, that's good. So, all right. So let's say I do get a, get a, a planting in this year. Should I start with, you know, if I'm going from maybe a traditional food plot, 
uh, strategy where let's say I leave it alone all year long. I come through a couple weeks before the season, I till everything up and I usually plant yeah. from there. If I want to yeah. start this year, should I go in there and till like I traditionally have as a way to jumpstart it all? Or should I just skip that all together and try to maybe burn what has grown up into there uh, throughout the year that I've just kind of left it dormant? Yeah, great question. There's some wiggle room in there. If there's really noxious weeds, it, it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deal or uh, excuse me. You can tell I get excited about stuff. I'm not going to disc or plow. That's the most harmful thing we can do to I would rather spray it twice with herbicide than disc. Okay. Literally. And when you disc, I think it was Penn State that recently published this, recent being last year. They did some samples all throughout Pennsylvania. I think their number was there's about 20 million weed seeds per cubic foot of soil. So a, a huge number. I'm sure I'm wrong, but a huge number. And you think, well, that can't be involved seeds because we're thinking pumpkin seeds or beans or corn or something. But you've probably never seen a ragweed seed or a pigweed seed. It's like flower, a little fine flower. You know, those plants can have half a million seeds per plant. You can only count them. So there are, and it seems like the more noxious the weed, the smaller the seed gets in some cases. So mm. if you disc or disturb the soil and you flip it over, you're going to bring up weed seeds that haven't been exposed in a long time, and they're going to grow. So I would rather just herbicide it and not stir up that weed seed bank and not let a lot of oxygen in the soil profile because too much oxygen in the soil profile encourages bad bacteria and kills good bacteria. And the right amount of oxygen would have been what infused in in worm hose and dung beetle hose and stuff like that. And a quick aside, if you're allowing me this, so we talk about where we were and how awesome the system was. Many species of dung beetles are almost extinct in America now. Think about what dung beetles did. They got some dung, buffalo dung, cattle dung, whatever, rolled up in a ball, put it about 8 to 14 inches deep in the soil. They put fertilizer right where the roots were going. Wow. And they put it down there so their young could feed on the dung. God had the perfect fertilizer spreaders all across this land, and we killed them with insecticides. Wow. I grew up, folks, and this, this is practitioner because I'm a practitioner. I grew up scouting turkeys in Missouri. You went out to where your farmer buddy was feeding cattle corn. He wasn't trying to bake turkeys, just feeding corn, normal cattle back in the day. They were on feedlots or on pasture back in the day. And you see where the turkeys were flipping those fresh cow pies, getting the maggots out of there. You're like, man, turkeys are working this right now. These cow pies are fresh. I'm challenging y'all. How many of y'all have seen a fly or a maggot in a cow pie in the last five years? Mm. Not many. Every cow, almost every cow out there is full of ivermectin. And it's just pooping out a toxic waste pile and every dung pile is going out. There's no insects. You don't see turkeys flipping cow pies anymore. Very rarely. Wow. We are changing our environment so rapidly thinking we're getting ahead and we're actually going backwards. You know, it's really interesting you mentioned that. So uh, we just moved recently and where we live now, there's cattle pastures all over the place. And with turkey season, obviously, I was like, I'll get out there and see if, if there's anything going on with, uh, you know, because I've always heard that, but I've never lived in cattle yeah. country. And I have yeah. yet to see a turkey in a cattle pasture. I, I, I have you know, not seen it yet. There's no, there's no insects in there. To wow. They weren't going for the food folks. They're going for the insects, the grubs, the yeah. maggots, whatever. Yeah. That's why. And I know there's turkeys in the area because I see them in other places. I've seen them in front sure. yards and all that, but I don't see them following around the cattle like I've always kind of heard and thought, you know, to be the case. Yeah. But man, that's, that's really, really interesting. So, as I'm getting things kicked off, right, I'm going to spray it twice. I'm going to yep. try my best to get this planted, even if it's really tough, because I can, 
I can I can hear some folks saying, well, you don't know my ground. It's really hard ground. I really, really need to get the tiller out, Grant. Are you sure I can't do it? No. No tillers. <laughs> there are some people, Trace and I, we're on the new proven grounds now, proven grounds too, and I was making a food plot. It's a couple acres, maybe about three acres, and it was timbered, gnarly, you know, not high-quality timber. So I had to get the yellow equipment in there, and they're plunking up the stumps, and it's all ruddy. So I, I have really heavy yellow equipment compacting the soil, filling in stump holes, moving trees, burn piles. You know, it's moonscape. I'm not going to till it. I'm going to no-till or broadcast and on the rain right into that. Mm. Would I loosen the soil if I till it? Yes, that's a positive. But I will also put too much air in the soil, killing the beneficial bacteria. And when you till, you know, your tractor is going along, and the physics of it, your disc or implement is behind there. So it's transferring some of the weight from the tractor to your implement and that's compacting the soil. So you think you're loosening it up and you are the top, you know, about five, six inches, but right below there, you're making a hard plant. Wow. And those young roots, new young plant is going down and hits that hard plant and it can't get any moisture and nutrients below that. So you're, you know, you want roots three, four, five, ten 10 feet deep. Now you got six inch roots. So one of your plants don't do too good. And it's really tough to break that hard pan. So I want to reduce my chances of creating a hard plan. I'm going to have a hard pan where Trace and I are doing this work. And this fall, I'm going to plant some extra cereal rye in my blend because it's got a massive root system. It's going to be able to fracture over time that hard pan and, and allow nutrients to go up and down and moisture. So a moisture go up and down through the root profile. Wow. That's, that's really, really good. Very, very helpful. So, what kind of blend are you going to kick it off with then? I, I think you've got some preferred ones that you, that you kind of like to yeah, use. Yeah, I mean, I'm biased. I, I, I'm biased. I help create the recipe for these blends. I don't own the company. I don't sell any seed out back my truck, but I, I have some, you know, some work, some skin in the game in this blend. So I, I work for some great companies, Mossio Biologic, great company, Eagle Seed. Uh, but I couldn't plant soybeans anymore, even at my place, 80 acres, because they get this tall deer wipe them out. Get this tall in my house. It's kind of an expensive project. And you, if you don't have plants growing above, you're not growing roots below, so you're not making the improvement in the soil. Yep. It's kind of like an iceberg. What you see above on the plant, there's probably two-thirds more below the soil. It's kind of like an iceberg. So I found this company, Green Cover, out in Nebraska, and they, they, don't, they don't care anything about deer. Deer seed their crops. They're an ag company. They're one of the largest cover crop seed companies in the world. Great guys, Christian company. I mean, great guys. Family-owned. And they, have, they carry about 150 different varieties of seed. And I studied them for afar for quite some time. Then I actually drove out there, just kind of, hey, I'm Grant Woods, can we talk deer a little bit? And they're like, man, are they eating your crop up? What's wrong with deer? They, you know, we need to kill some deer. No, 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 I want deer. <laughs> they got all these varieties of seed, but there's no, there's no deer on the front cover. There's no marketing like that. They're just selling seed. You can get in a you know, big container if you want, or like me, I can't handle that 50-pound bag, whatever. But they go through such a high volume of seed. They're not carrying anything over. It's really fresh seed, that professional level seed cleaners. You're not getting weed seed in your stuff. I mean, they're a real thing. And I have swayed them to put together some blends for the food plot community. It's just that simple. There's no magic foo-foo shady mirrors going on behind. And so they let me have pretty free run of all one putting the blends because they're not deer hunters. I mean, the two hunters aren't deer hunters at all. They're like, why would anyone sit out there for three hours? I'm like, don't start because it'd be addicting. <laughs> um, and so we have these blends and then above and beyond that, 
they have teamed up with the world's best coating to put the microbes we've been talking about. They've isolated these microbes in the coating in order to stay alive right on the seed. You know, get your packet out like we used to and dust the seed. Oh, yeah. You throw the packet on the, you know, the dash your truck and it sits in the heat for three days. All the microbes are long dead by the time you get around the plant. And so it allows us to have this professional quality seed handling, seed sources, and microbes at farmer prices because farmers would not pay, you know, $400 for a little thing at Clover. No farmer's going to do that. Sure. So just allows us to tap into that network. Wow. So GreenCoverFoodPlots.com. And this fall, I'm always experimenting, but I'm planting something very close to fall browse pressure release because Trace and I haven't made many food plots on our new place. So I got a lot of deer who compete for not much food. So I need much tonnage as I can get. And so I help create a blend for my needs, but I think there's a lot of people that have more deer than food plots. So that blend is called fall browse pressure release. Browse pressure meaning it's going to grow a lot of tonnage, knowing that some of the species in there are really palatable and deer are going to eat them first because we almost see a deer in our food plot opening day. And then there's other species that are drought resistant. Other species are really good at improving soil. And some that are going to be palatable mid and late season. It's almost like a time release food plot blend. Yeah. If you don't have that problem, you can save a little bit of money. You say, man, I got a great food plot program. We've been really harvesting all those just due to fall, uh, fall release. It's a little bit less expensive. You're not going to grow quite as much tonnage. You may, you're still going to have plenty of tonnage, but if you don't have a lot of deer, you, you may not need that extra blend. And then we have one, because, you know, a little hideo, a little 30-yard circle, if you talk about browse pressure, I mean, that baby can get nailed. Uh, I have a, a hideo blend for me, but you can buy it. And that has a, another slightly different, it's made to be a little bit more shade tolerant. Hideos tend to have timber around them, a little bit more shade in the early season, stuff like that. So I've just created blends that me and my friends, you know, I work in South Carolina, I was just in New York all over, me and my buddies would use, and it's just available to everybody. Wow. So I'm really interested in that, in that browse pressure blend. I, I was on a property the other day uh, with a landowner and, and working with him on some, you know, placement of his food plots and that kind of thing. Cause they, they've never really had any on this, on this property. Sure. And um, it, we got to talking and, and it just became very evident very quickly. There's no food left. He's got way too many deer. <clears throat> He's got 150 acres in North Georgia. And I, I turned to him and I said, how, how many does do you guys typically harvest off this property? It just changed hands from, from one guy that's hunted there for the last 30 years to this, to this gentleman. He just, so uh-huh. they've all hunted there forever. So I said, how, how many does do you guys take a year? He said, in the 30 years that I know of, we've only shot one doe off of this property. And, <laughs> and the person that shot that doe almost got kicked off the property for shooting it. Damn. So yeah, my mm. suspicions were, <laughs> we're correct. And, and I think he may have a hard time. He was like, you know, th- do you think we could put some beans out in these larger fields? And I'm like, not a chance, not a, not a chance. They will get mowed down to the ground. So I'm really interested in that, in that browse pressure blend. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a summer browse pressure release and a fall browse pressure. Release. Okay. So, you know, di- obviously different species for different times of year. Sure. Sure. And what I do, you know, I do, no, I do no till, but what I do, I drill, you know, Right now here in Missouri, we're finally warming up a little bit, and the clover and the cereal rye and the wheat and stuff is just really, you know, it's bulky. It's growing big. I'm six foot tall, and it'd be chest tall on me by planting time, mid-May, something like that here in Missouri, and on the year in the rain. And I'll just drill right through that. So my standing crop, and I'll drill right through that. 
and there's several advantages. Hey, I'm not disturbing the soil. Literally, Ohio State Big Ag School has done some work, and when your tractor tires are rolling on thick living vegetation, because that vegetation has a lot of water in it, you get more fuel economy and less wear and tear on your tires. That doesn't really wow. mount those food plot guys, right? We're going to do it no matter what. But if you're an ag guy doing 1,000 acres and you're saving that much diesel, I'm talking about our nation, folks. We can heal this land. We can do it. We know how to do this. But anyway, wow. um, and then and then I have a crimper, which is like a roller, but it's got blades on it. I get this question all the time. Can I use my roller? No, because a roller, if you drive through your yard and you leave tracks in the yard right where your wife's going to have, you know, the, the Bible study over, and she goes, honey, I can't believe it's ugly. So, honey, by the time your ladies get here, the grass be standing back up. Because we've all done this and seen it, right? Well, it's kind of like food plots. So you need a crimper that has these flares on there, these, you know, just fins, and that crimps the stock. It breaks the circulatory system. And that's what kills it to die. Now, you can't crimp any time. But when the plants like cereal rye or wheat or something is making a seed head, it's pretty weak because it's putting all that nutrients up to the seed head. You crimp it then, that baby smoked. So I'll drill right through my standing crop. I actually let it germinate an inch or two. Those young plants are so pliable. They're just, you know, you drive over, they stand back up. And the magic here is a lot of magic. Everyone thinks it's just about soul health. But you've got all those deer out there wanting to eat, but they're not sticking their head down in four foot of cereal rye to get a two-inch crop. So it's like a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. It actually gets warmed out there. So your new crop is starting off in that greenhouse effect, just like the buffalo trampling the plants on the Great Prairie. And you get a good root system going, get a good start, so a little bit more browse tolerant, more drought tolerant. And then I crimp that vegetation down. That becomes my mulch or weed mat, just like in your garden or in your flower bed. And all that four or five inches of mulch keeps weeds at bay because, we talked about earlier, weed seeds are very small. And have what I call all, all seeds onboard energy. That's all they got till they make a couple of leaves and photosynthesize. They got to live off that stored energy. Well, you take a you know a pigweed seed. You can barely see it, really small, and it germinates. It's shallow on the soil, so it gets warm and wet right time of year, and it germinates. It's got to go through four inches of mulch before it can make a couple of leaves and photosynthesize. It starves to death. So this is my another big part of my weed protection, that mulch. Just like yeah. you're keeping weeds in your garden or flower bed mulch. And then take that step further, because those plants have been pulling nutrients up, right? They're taking nutrients out of soil. We hope deer consume some of those nutrients. I crimp them down. It's dry. Not much is growing. If you got straw outside and it's dry, it just stays there, right? It doesn't really decompose very fast. Comes a little rain, my plants want to grow more, and my mulch decomposes quicker making the perfect slow-release fertilizer. The, you, no one can time it better. There's no little dial in your garage. You go, oh, I'm going to give my yard a little. There's no dial that will fertilize any more perfectly than God's plan, where when it rains and decomposes that existing vegetation, right when the plants are wanting to grow more. If it doesn't rain, it's not releasing the fertilizer. And the fertilizer is not eroding off site because it's tied up in these plant stems. There's no erosion. Yeah, yeah. It's just an incredible how well this system works. Is it perfect? No. Are you going to have failures? Yes, I've had plenty. But my successes far outweigh my failures, and it costs so much less. True in all life, if we follow the plan, our life costs less, right? We, we're healthier. We do better. It's not as mucky, yucky. It just fits. Yeah. So let's talk about what, what for me has been uh, one of the most common barriers that I hear, and it's that it's it's those pieces of a, of a crimper and uh, a, a no-till drill. 
I think those are yeah. probably more accessible to people than than they think that they maybe are. Um, what do you? What, how would you counsel someone who says, "Hey, I want to do this. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to pull the trigger. I can't afford a crimper and I can't afford a no-till drill." Get that question all the time, and I understand it because I've lived that life. Yeah, I remember I'm on the other. I'm at 61. I'm on the other side of income earning now. But yep. I've lived that life. I started out renting a no-till drill, I said earlier, mm-hmm. from our local NRCS office. And many, almost every county in America has an NRCS office. And a lot of those offices rent no-till drills. I think this is a good government program. because, And they do this not to help you grow bigger deer, to save soil, cut down on erosion, make our streams cleaner, all this kind of stuff. Okay? And usually, it varies a little bit around America. It's like ten bucks an acre. It's super inexpensive. That's what I was going to ask like you, you. I was going to ask you if you could if you could share what that is because I know for um, one of the counties that I was looking at recently, I think it was eleven fifty an acre. To it's somewhere in that range. Some of them have a minimum like seventy five dollars. If you're only planting two acres, there's a minimum to bring it to you. Whatever, like seventy five dollars. I hear different numbers around America as I work, but it's somewhere in that ten dollar an acre range, give yep. or take a little, not yep. fifty dollars an acre, anything like that. Okay. And then again, on our small food plots, I'm not getting a crimper or a drill up in Ozark mountain back to where I got a little hidey hole. So I'm going to let my, I've got several of these right now. I'm going to let them grow and get a little bit more mature, get that seed a little closer to mature than I would in my big plots. And I'm going to blow a fire line around it. And I'm going to drop a match and let one hatch. So I'm just, because at that time, a lot of the moisture has left the body of the plant. There's moisture in the seed head. You don't want to wait so long that that seed head ripens because let's just take wheat. One kernel of wheat may end up with 40 seeds and they're falling down to the ground and some percentage of them will germinate and it'd be so thick. None of them do well. That's why volunteers doesn't work well. It's either too thin or too thick because one seed makes a bunch of seeds, right? That's the process. So I'm going to wait till right before the seeds are mature and you squeeze a seed and moisture pops out. It's not going to germinate. You know, seeds are hard. They're drying hard. So I'm going to wait till later in that maturing process. Then I'm going to use prescribed fire, hopefully a rain in the forecast. And, and, and nitrogen is going to volatize and go up. But all the other nutrients that plant are falling right there. It's just fresh fertilizer right on top of the ground. I couldn't have spread it any evenly. Okay. And it cost me 30 minutes of time and a match or whatever it takes. Okay. Now that's black and that soil is going to get really hot because sunshine on it. That's another reason you want to wait to right for a rain to spread the seed. You don't want to put seed out on something's getting 120 degrees, you're frying it. Um, but I'm just going to burn it off, and then I'm going to podcast seed and all that fresh fertilizer from the fire. And remember, the heat rises, so all the roots and all the nutrients are in the roots are right there. And as those roots start decomposing, and it's obviously successful, if there's a root there, it found moisture and it found nutrients. There's a reason a root is there. That's called, when it rocks out, that's a root channel, and the new root is going right down it. Yeah. If you're a new root and you're pressing on a rock or a hoe, where are you going? You're going through the hoe. It was obviously successful because that's how the root got there. If it wasn't successful, that root would starve, shrivel up, and die. But if you till one time, one tillage pass, you destroy all those root channels. You destroy all the worm holes. You destroy if there's any beetles where you are, all the beetle holes. One pass of tillage sets you back to ground zero. Mm. What a, so that, that's super, super, um, accessible for most people, either your County probably has a, has a drill or a County around you. I mean, if you've got a, if you've got to do a little bit of a, of a drive to, to get to a drill at, even if it's $20 an acre, realistically, not that bad in, in the big scheme of of costs for your property. 
Yeah, what I'm seeing a bunch of guys doing, guys and gals, two or three families will get together and say, I mean, I got 10 acres, we plot, I got 12, maybe I got four. None of us really can pull off a drill, but what if all three of us formed a co-op? Yeah. <clears throat> and we split it three ways. And we just, you know, we got a little handshake agreement. Okay, if you break it, you fix it. You break it, you fix it, you know, or however you want to set it up. But I'm seeing a lot of, because the drill, you know, when you're really busy in spring, you're really busy in fall, and the rest of time it's set mine some shed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm seeing a lot of co-ops. You, you hear about deer co-ops, and now there's getting to be a lot of prescribed fire co-ops, you know, because it takes some manpower to do a prescribed fire safely. I think this is a wonderful thing. So, and it gets neighbors talking, and, you know, instead of that neighbor being that guy, now all of a sudden, hey, that neighbor helped me do a fire. I'm going to help him do a fire. Well, I'm seeing that same mindset, which I think is so healthy for our nation, sharing implements or maybe, hey, I got a tractor. Well, I got a drill or, hey, I'll buy a drill if you let me use your tractor, then you can use my drill. There's all kinds of ways to put this together. Yep, absolutely. And I think one more thing, too, that I, that I want to mention, because that, that burning is such a uh, such an important piece if you can't get the, the crimper right. But as yeah. I've talked with a lot of people, there's still um, people are all for the idea of burning as long as it's someone else doing it until it comes to dropping a match on their own 40 or their own 50, and then it becomes a, a very big and scary thing. And I think it's important to point out, you can burn a food plot in, in much different conditions than you can burn, let's say, timber around it. You can do it not long after a rain. You can do it on days that, you know, you may not get a great burn elsewhere, but the vegetation in that food plot has already dried up better than what's around it. Yes. You know, you, so yes. you can do it on days that are a little more moist, a little safer, to burn than what you might run through your timber. Absolutely. And it's really easy to make a good line five or six feet wide in the leaf litter or whatever's around you around a, you know, a quarter acre, a half acre, acre food plot. You're not burning the side of a mountain down. You're burning a very controlled area. And just, if I could just to make sure everyone's safe out here. So if this is our food plot and the wind is going this way, I'm going to start here because I don't want the wind pushing it because it might then push an amber across the line and get in an area we weren't really wanting to burn. That's right. So if the wind is going this way, that would be called a head fire if we burn this way. We want a backing fire. And the flames, you know, six inches tall, foot tall, put on the fuel, amount of fuel out there. And it's going to back, because the winds want to drive it this way, and it has to ignite the next fuel, the next fuel, the next fuel. So if you're new to fire, get someone with you that's done it before. Almost every state now has a prescribed fire class. It's up New York. And, but once you do it and you do it safely on a small food plot area, it's just, it's always good to respect fire, but we shouldn't fear fire. It's a natural process. Yep. That's a really good point. So we're, we're not going to let the, let the wind blow the fire in a direction We're we're, we're burning into the wind. And then also if you're in hill country, if it's on a slope or something like that, or even if you are burning your timber, you want to start at the top, work your way down. You don't want to be burning uphill because that's where you get very hot fires They'll start singeing your trees. Things will move a lot faster than you want them to. And if you're just planting a like or a burning it, like you said, a quarter acre food plot, half acre food plot, get a couple of buddies. You can keep that thing moving real, real slow and keep an eye on it. You don't have anywhere else to be, right? Just take the day and uh, make that your project. Yeah, it's 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 not as scary as it sounds, but all of us have some intimidation for something brand new. Oh yeah, and once you've done time or two, it's not good. Yep. So the last thing that I want to, to talk about um, is 
when it just from something that I've heard recently talking about on like uh, the the uh, uh, turkey wild turkey science podcast. Something that I had never really thought about, but it was talking about no-till planting specifically for you know poults and how the a thick thatch layer underneath can really uh, make the areas difficult for poults. And I know you love wild turkeys. You uh, are all about wild turkey conservation. So I'm curious to hear your take. Is there anything that you're doing specifically to say, I'm going to you know do this to the edge of my food plots to make it accessible to poults a little bit easier? Or are you thinking this isn't for the poults? I've got other habitat for the poults. Well, my place, really low percent of the property, really low, you know, a couple percent, one percent, two percent. It's food plot, so it's, sure. a, it's an absolute non-concern for me. Yep, yep. If you're out in Nebraska, Kansas, where there may be farmers doing a thousand acres of no-till or something like that, some of the properties I go to out there that are really big in the soil health have the best turkey populations, the best pheasant populations. Because remember, we got to put this all together. You disc a field, you spray it, there is almost zero insects out there. What's the number one food source for a pole? Insects. Yep. You go to Virginia Bag Farm, insects everywhere and those posts are feeding like crazy they're getting bigger their body weights i can't you know chamberlain i can't testify this it's just from hunting out there and going dang that's a big turkey <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, some of those farmers i said absolutely some of the best pheasant populations left are on these virginia bag farms yep so absolutely I, i'm not worried about that I, i'm very realistic I mean, i've had two kidney transplants folks a bad day is when you lay there and go I sure hope that thing goes beep again. That's a bad day. Yeah. These other things are not worth arguing over. Let's quit this bickering and arguing and just look at what's happening on the landscape. And so we look at Kansas. You see the, you, you literally see a flock. I'm not, people are not going to believe me, but I'm not being exaggerating at all. Of a thousand turkeys in the winter, winter flock birds in Kansas. Wow. Places I used to hunt turkeys, like Grant, kill them all. Kill 50. They're getting in my silos or messing up my cattle feed. Do not allow any turkey hunting anymore. That habitat has not changed, folks. I've been going to these farms for a long time. Wow. The habitat has not changed. We're adding neonics now to our corn, which mm-hmm. is a really wicked insecticide. You don't hear me people talking about neonics. That's a wick. And turkey's going to scratch right down the road with corn and eat those seeds. There's a lot of things going on that we didn't have 5, 10, 20 years ago that are impacting turkey populations. Habitat's certainly one. Predators are a huge one. And, and seed coatings and other things are a huge, too. I would not pick on the Virginia bag thinking that's a big concern. Sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, really good point. I, you know, there's a, there are several places in Wisconsin where I hunt that the farms are, I would say 20 down to as little as 5% timber on these farms. Yeah. They're mostly corn or soybean fields. And these, these farmers are, are no-till farmers. Most of the time, one thing I've noticed is they'll till a portion of it every year. It seems I don't really know why they why they do that, but they're no-till yeah. for most of the farm, most of the time. Those are the farms with the huge turkey populations. I mean, gigantic turkey populations. And uh, like you said, they seem to be really healthy. They seem to be, be doing extremely well. And, man, if I see one more turkey cut open with neon seeds inside of it on Instagram, I, I've seen too many of that already. It, it's disturbing every time I see it, and not because it's a turkey cut open, but it's because, man, what are we doing to those animals? when they're ingesting all of that. Yeah, and and us. us. And us. And there's a trickle down. What are we doing to the fox that ate that turkey? What are we doing to the owl that ate that turkey? What are we doing to the coyote that ate that turkey? Yep. What's going in our groundwater? What what are we drinking? 
that 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 coating does not stay on the seed. This is researched and published, published in science literature. So yeah, we can do better, folks. I'm not mad. I just now that we have this information, let's all work to do better. That's good. That's a really really good point. We're not not mad about it. We just know things now, so let's act on it. Right, like I mean, it's like society, right? There's several things we used to do that we now know were abhorrent. Let's don't do them anymore. Yep. Let's don't do that anymore. And if we can do better farming, let's do it. Because this is not just a farmer's income. I'm very concerned about rural America and you know suicide rates and farmers and all this stuff. Yep. But it's our air we're breathing everywhere. It's the water we're drinking everywhere. All, all these things are on global cycles. It's not like well that's just isolated to Western Kansas. These are global cycles, and we can do better. And one thing I will say, last I'm so sorry, but I'm so passionate about this. I have seen, I have seen just destroyed earth just become vibrant habitat. Mm-hmm. There's a reason there's so many critters right now where Chernobyl blew up and was a radiant nightmare because man didn't end up boogering it up anymore. Mm. We can survive a nuclear catastrophe. In some cases, literally, folks, you don't believe me, you can Google this and read all about it, better than we can overgrazing or tillage. We can survive some of these things better. We have examples. They're greening the desert in Saudi Arabia. I'm talking bald as my head sand. People working and planting and conserving water and moisture are making oases out of pure desert. We know how to do it. Not just on your back 40 where you're deer hunting. We know how to do this, and we can make this better for our children and our children's children. The world is not ending. We just have to pay attention to what we're doing. Yeah, man, that, that's really, really good. Well, Grant, I, I really appreciate your time today. Tell me about what turkey plans you've got. Hey, Monday starts turkey season here in Missouri. All we're right. recording this on a, a Friday, and Monday starts season, so you can bet I'll be out listening for Tom. I got to. A few thoughts where I'm going to start, just based on work, and we've been doing a lot of prescribed fire, and I'm seeing some toms or some strut marks in some areas. So I love turkey season. I love just being out there. Uh, everything about it, the new plants are going up. I'll stop when I'm chasing a turkey, and I'm, you know, I get boo-booed on this. and See a plant that I don't know and whip out my app on my phone and say, hey, what is that plant? Yeah. And learn, learn and apply that. Because if you're regenerating your land, Seeds are so amazing. They're staying in the soil 50 years, 100 years, and you start seeing plants that, you know, your county doesn't know what it is. Yep. And I, I've experienced that. And it's so cool. So turkey hunting is a big thing. I like catching me a white bass every now and then. There you go. I like to feel that crappie tugging on the end of my pole. I really like to see that crappie in my frying pan. That's where I really like to see it. Yeah. So lots of good stuff going on in the spring. Man, that's awesome. I, uh, I head out tomorrow heading to Iowa. If I can get done mm-hmm. in Iowa fast enough, I'm, I may dip down to Missouri, then up to Wisconsin to do a little turkey hunting. So I've got a, I've got an action-packed next couple of weeks. So I wanted to hear what your yes, plans sir. were. But, Grant, thank you so much for coming on today. Appreciate your time. Where can folks go to find more from you, more about the release process? Yeah, just search on Growing Deer on any of the platforms you use. You're fine. It's just search on Growing Deer. And, Josh, thank you so much for being a gracious host and Let me go down a few rabbit trails here and there. I really appreciate you and your show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Grant. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, 
You can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out thesportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts.